Sit down and buckle up. It's time for the Pirate Monk Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. Oh, once again, it's uh, it's me, your old friend Nate Larkin, all by myself at the control booth. Uh, hopeful that by next week I'll be able somehow uh, to connect with Aaron out on the West Coast so that we can do this show together. Uh, but in a few minutes, we'll be playing an interview that uh, Aaron recorded a little while ago while Allie and I were out of town. Now, uh, we were out of town because it was our wedding anniversary. Now, I know for any married couple, anniversaries are big, but for Allie and me, anniversaries are especially big. In my mind, at least. And I think in Allie's as well. You know, it's, it's almost, for us, a celebration of, of resurrection. It's practically Easter. Uh, it's not that our, you know, that my addiction completely killed our marriage, but by the time uh, 22 years ago that Allie finally uh, became fully aware of what was going on in my life, uh, our marriage was very much on life support. It was as close to dead as it could come. And uh, conventional wisdom would have said that Allie should have pulled the plug. Uh, she should have put us both out of our misery. That's what a lot of people would have advised her. Nobody would have blamed her. She had every right in the world to walk away. And uh, for whatever reason, uh, you know, by the grace of God, uh, my best friend didn't do it. Not that she jumped back in in the full trusting relationship with me. She didn't. We had some, some rough and rocky years, but uh, she gave me time. Uh, she stepped back. She didn't leave and didn't force me to leave. And, uh, and uh, I am so grateful, both of us are today, that, you know, not only didn't our marriage die, but uh, that re relationship, which is so precious to both of us and which had begun as a good friendship, actually flowered into something deeper and more beautiful than we had known before. And... Uh, so that was 20 years in on our 25th wedding anniversary. We renewed our vows here in Franklin, Tennessee, uh, you know, in the company of a couple hundred friends and family and, and celebrated. And every May 21st since then has been huge for us. And so we go out of our way to celebrate our wedding anniversary. We like to do it with a trip these days. Allie and I have always traveled well together. So this year, when uh, <laughs> our anniversary was coming up, we had to decide what to do. Uh, Allie still didn't quite feel comfortable getting on a plane, you know, here as the pandemic fades. Uh, it, and a cruise didn't sound very familiar, uh, you know, appealing to her. So we wanted to find something uh, within driving distance, but a place that we could actually get away on a trip. So uh, what I did was I, I went to to Google, the all-knowing Google, and searched uh, best small towns in the South. I, th I thought maybe a, a nice stay in an unfamiliar small town uh, might, might be just the ticket. And uh, high on the list was a place I'd never been and I don't know that I'd ever heard of, Eureka Springs, Arkansas. 
so I went on uh, VRBO and found a historic home there for rent for a week. So Allie and I spent the week, uh, you know, that week around our anniversary in Eureka Springs. Uh, by the way, not an easy place to get to. And you're going to maneuver some pretty, uh, you know, twisty roads to get there. There's not a good airport close by. The closest one, I guess, is in Branson, which is about an hour away. Uh, Eureka Springs is pretty close to the Missouri line. Um, Allie and I had a wonderful time together in, you know, a historic resort town. It was a health resort back in the uh, in the time after the Civil War. It became a place where soldiers went to recuperate from their wounds. There are a bunch of springs in this town. Uh, seven or eight springs and healing properties were attributed to them back in the day. Some hotels were built in the late 1800s, early 1900s that are still there. Allie and I went to one of those old hotels one day, the day of our anniversary, actually, to do, uh, you know, to get the full spa treatment. I got my first massage in a long time, and it was a legitimate massage, thank God. <laughs> And we, you know, we did, uh, you know, we did sauna treatments and golly, it was like a girl's day out, except it was she and I, couples massage and saunas and went out to eat at a wonderful place, had a great meal, spent wonderful time together. And it was while we were away that, that, <laughs> that um, the podcast interview with John Allard was scheduled. This was a rescheduled interview. The first one had failed because of some technical difficulties. I had really been looking forward to a conversation with John, but uh, my schedule with Allie precluded me from participating in the conversation. Aaron went ahead and conducted the interview. Uh, I've had a chance uh, to listen to it. It is absolutely fascinating. Longer than the normal interview, but I hung on every word. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I found some points. I wish I'd been there. You know, when John mentioned that his parents met at a Bible school in upstate New York called Elam. I about jumped out of my skin because that's where my dad went to Bible school. And, and I spent a lot of my childhood years on that campus. So I have, have a pleasant, very pleasant memories. And I'm also very familiar with the Brownsville revival where a, a point where it was a point of uh, spiritual intersection uh, for John. Anyway, you want to get inspired then stay tuned. You're going to love this conversation with John Allred on the Pirate Monk Podcast. And we are back on the Pirate Monk Podcast. We get to have a conversation today. Well, we, Nate's not here. He's on the road. But I get to have a conversation with John Allred of Freedom Church. Now, where where is Freedom Church? A minute? No. Yeah, so it's uh, Freedom City Church. And uh, the main campus is in Springfield, Missouri. Springfield, Missouri. 
And I am excited just to have a conversation with a guy who has an interesting story of redemption. And uh, you've got some amazing stuff going on. So let's start just with giving your story to the listeners the thumbnail sketch. I'm sure there's a two-hour version of this. <laughs> so I don't know which parts you want to tell. I'm curious from early on, though. So let's just give it a shot. Go for it, John. Who are you? Yeah, so uh, I'm John Allred, and man, it's good to to be on here with you, Aaron. And uh, uh, but man, my story is just uh, uh, one of uh, you know I, I actually grew up uh, in and around the things of God. Um, my dad uh, moved to the United States from uh, Mexico to attend Bible college in upstate New York in a Bible college called Elam. Uh, my mom came from the West Coast. Uh, her sisters were saved in the Jesus movement out in San Diego, Southern California area, and uh, they met at Bible school. So the uh, Hispanic guy with the wild uh, uh, white California girl, you know, she's a Norwegian, <laughs> Norwegian descent. And uh, my dad's side were Mexican descent. So. I tell people we're like, I'm like a Viking Pancho Villa, you know, so. Uh, but, oh, nice. Okay. Yeah, right. So I so grew where, up, I grew where up did in he America. End up? Yeah. yeah. That? Where, where at? Where did he end up with this Bible degree and a uh, hippie girl? Right. So they graduated uh, uh, Bible college and then uh, went to uh, uh uh, a four-year school, Bryan uh, University in Tennessee, and then they went to uh, the uh, the mission field. Um, so I grew up in Latin America, uh, Costa Rica, Guatemala, uh, Mexico. Uh, grew up speaking Spanish and English from uh, from a baby, you know. So I cheated, uh, easy A in my college Spanish classes. But uh, my parents ended up going through a divorce. Uh, it was a pretty, uh, it wasn't pretty. And, uh, how, how got, old were you at that time? So I was about, um, 11 years old. Mm. Uh, my brother was two and a half years younger. And, uh, after that, there wasn't a lot of supervision, uh, for a few years there. And I ended up going the wrong way. And how, now, were you back in the United States at that point, or were we you were still? Back in the, yeah, we were back in the United States. Um, where were you? So in uh, New Mexico. Okay. Were uh, you more with your mom or your dad, or I was, was it? More, I was more with my dad. Um, so we lived in Houston for a while, then in uh, uh, in, in New Mexico. Um, now, I gotta ask because any pastor's kids, I've got tons of questions for. Uh, after the divorce, how did that affect him? Because you grew up with this missionary dad and missionary mom. I imagine most folks keep it pretty clean on the outside. I'm not sure what you saw at home, but how did this affect your dad? And what did you witness as this little 11 year old? Yeah. So what was talked about at church wasn't going on at home. So there was a lot of fighting, um, uh, you know, so there was um, um, immorality. Um, and so which led to the, 
um, divorce. And so f- for me, that like I said, there was kind of a disconnect, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, as far as Christianity and, and uh, uh, what it really was. And so my parents are amazing. They love Jesus. They made mistakes. They did the best they could. Um, they're both still living for the Lord now. And I know it's their prayers uh, that brought me home. Right. Okay. And so I, I understand that. But from that yeah. point, I, I, it did a, uh, had a you know devastating effect on, on uh, both of my parents, the divorce. And um, neither one of them uh, remarried. And, uh, but anyway, I ended up, uh, you know, started smoking weed, drinking, uh, alcohol at a, at a young age in high school. And, um, I was good at school. So I, I made good grades. I actually went to New Mexico military Institute and was making good grades. Um, uh, but I would party. So I would, uh, smoke weed and drink, get drunk and got busted, kicked out of, New Mexico Military Institute uh, graduated from a school in uh, uh, in, in uh, Albuquerque called Manal School, and was still kind of kind of rough. And uh, some of my cousins and uncles were involved in um, illegal activity. And I started my first year at the University of New Mexico um, in 1991, um, but. Within three semesters, uh, the, in the third semester, I was actually arrested for cocaine trafficking. So I started, um, I was affiliated with uh, um, gangs and also a major Mexican uh, cartel. And so we started uh, selling drugs and huge markup uh, from Albuquerque. And people would come from up north and pick up uh, simple economics, right? So, all right. Well, we'll uh, pause here because I got I got two questions because you've made sure. a leap in your story. I did. Uh, first is, it sounds like this was kind of a slow and dare I say natural. This is not a natural thing at all, but progression because of your uncle and relatives that you kind of eased into this, so it didn't seem weird. Uh, or was there a moment that you thought? Yeah, here I go. This this is my direction. This is easy money. You know what? You know what I think it was. Uh, so we moved. We moved. We you know I moved around. You know back and forth, United States, different things. When I was a, a kid, um, so I didn't have a lot of roots. Um, so I think it was. Uh, of course, the easy money. So I was making more money than both of my parents put together, you know, in one month and they made mm-hmm. in a year. But um, you also had family all of a sudden. Right. My family. Yeah, exactly. And so I think who I looked up to um, was my uncle who had money, had uh, cars, uh, houses, and uh, um, but also, you know, would do stints in the federal prison, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But as as a kid, you see that and kind of glorified um, uh, that lifestyle. Um, right. So now, had yeah, you so graduated to harder drugs than just pot and drinking by this point, or were you still? I, yeah, when selling? I was. So my first. So here's the thing. I thought I was just a drug dealer, and so I was kind of. Uh, I believed that. You know, I'd kind of left my Christian faith. I wasn't uh, a religion basher, but I just didn't believe that that was uh, the one way, right? Mm 
And uh, so I started off just by thinking, well, people should be able to, you can rationalize anything, right? So pharmaceutical companies, why can't grown adults, libertarian type of, why can't make their own decisions? And um, what's interesting is some of the things that I got in trouble for, um, you know, many years ago, 20 plus years ago, now you'll be on the local business journal. (laughs) So I was at I was at a recent meeting with the leaders in Springfield called Leadership Springfield, and uh, it's like business and faith and uh, leaders in the community, right? And mm-hmm. uh, so there was a guy that started the hemp dispensary here. Uh, started in Jeff City. Now it's here in Springfield, right? Uh, marijuana dispensary. And so is it is it legal there? It is. So oh, you can, okay. Yeah. So they had. Uh, yeah, so you can get it for for almost anything, you know, uh, you can go get it. But uh, uh, so what was interesting is he came up to me and he said, I love what you're doing, you know, and he goes, how can how can I support you? You know, wow. and I told yeah. him, you know, what's interesting, uh, if I would if if you were me, uh, you know, uh, 30 years ago, you know, <laughs> you would have been in prison. And he goes, I know. He goes, that's why I'm passionate about it. So it's an unlikely a supporter of reentry and uh, faith-based uh, recovery ministry would be, uh, you know, the guy uh, uh, that heads up the, the the marijuana dispensary in in Missouri. But right, he's not he's not a dealer anymore. He's an entrepreneur. So exactly. it's exactly <laughs> yeah. So you were you just pictured yourself as a drug dealer. You weren't like them, and even the them's you weren't judging, which probably opened a door for you uh to start to use different drugs and more yeah so um i was just uh smoking marijuana and drinking and i thought that was no no big deal snorting some lines of cocaine uh but i wasn't a junkie in my mind at 19 years old a junkie were these people showing up with chains to try to buy drugs and needle marks in their arm um and never thought I would get there, you know. I had nice cars, dressed nice, you know, and uh, but, um, you know, so it progressed and it did. The progression was kind of slow, you know, from one time I started smoking rock. So I uh, free based, I was cooking up the powder i don't know if you know what i'm talking about but i was cooking up the powdered uh, cocaine this is in the early 90s so this is when the rock cocaine really became mm-hmm. really popular where we were at and so i would uh rock it up and uh sell it sell it like that um and one night a friend came over and uh brought a glass pipe and uh you know so that was my first time smoking i was 19 years old and from there it was off to the races um, I dropped out of uh, college. Um, it got so crazy at my little house there. I lived a few blocks away from University of New Mexico. Um, and there would be cars lined up outside, co- people coming to get drugs all hours. Um, and so I began to get extremely paranoid. Um, mm-hmm. I would uh, move to hotel rooms and meet people in alleys and you know, still doing the same thing, but extremely just uh, paranoid. I would drink a lot of whiskey and Valium and smoke a lot of marijuana. And what what happened was 
uh, a guy ended up, a friend, quote unquote, said, you should just uh, inject heroin. That'll bring you down off of the cocaine. Um, and so I did it. While I, th- I was afraid. And he goes, I looked away. You know, the first time that I was injected, I couldn't even look at it. But it brought me down. I thought, this is the miracle drug, <laughs> right? So it brought me off the paranoid um, trip that I was on. Um, and so from then on, it was, I did them together. So heroin and cocaine, uh, so it's called speedball or mm-hmm. Belushi, right? What killed uh, John Belushi. Um, and so that's what uh, I did for for years after that. And I got arrested in my third semester. I got arrested for, um, uh, right, you know, at a restaurant right down from University of New Mexico. I got arrested for selling an ounce of cocaine and 100 uh, hits of acid, so a sheet of acid. Um, got set up. The guy had gotten popped and he rolled on me and I went to jail uh, and uh, got out to fight the charges on, on Monday uh, the after the weekend. So I spent the weekend at Bernalillo County Detention Center. Um, was, and that, was your, that was your first time ever being in jail? It was, I was in jail one time before for shoplifting as a kid. But it was just mm-hmm. for a, a few hours and got right. out. So, so yeah, what? What did you? What? What did you feel? There you are facing charges and spending a weekend in jail, and you're what, like twenty two at this point, twenty one? Um, yeah. So I was like nineteen or twenty, actually. Oh, okay. Nineteen or twenty, uh, third semester of college. Um, oh, third semester. Yeah. So you're you're like third semester. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so I was in there. Uh, and it was packed out. There was, uh, you know, they had to push what they call a boat in. So it was like a two-man cell, but they pushed a mattress in on a boat. Um, so there was, like, no walking room. There was someone on the floor and then two people on bunks. And I'm in there with a guy who was, uh, I don't even think I've ever shared this, but we're getting into some details. But I was in there with a guy that was a heroin addict. So in Spanish, he we, it's a tecato, right, a heroin addict. And uh, he said uh, uh, he got pulled over and, uh, you know, had stolen a VCR and was taking it to the dope man and uh, ended up getting arrested. And he was withdrawing from heroin in the, in the jail. And they asked me what I was in there for. I said I got busted with an ounce of cocaine and uh, sheet of acid. And they were like, and the guy was like, man, you know what I mean? Like that was a lot of drugs to them, you know, it's not really that that much but uh and i thought man i'll never be like like these guys you know what i mean mm, uh so strung out still- i mean this whole i mean their ar- arms were jacked up from uh needles you know st- walking down the street with the vcr and i'm thinking now he's you know it's, it's funny how you, you compare it you try to compare right so yeah, now they've right. got a problem i'm 19 years old i'm just providing a service to the community um but yeah, so I think, you know what, I, it was uh, uh, three days, you know, or two or three days there that I was in there the weekend and uh, for the first so, time in years, like was not, didn't have a substance in mm-hmm. me. And uh, um, I think after I got out and I really think Aaron, it was like, uh, it was a battle in my mind at that point. Um, whether just to walk away from this, that life and man, get back, move out of town, get into another college and, and move forward in my life. 
um, you know, and uh, it was a crossroads. And lamentably, well, I didn't make the right decision. And can, can I went we pause? Can, can we pause mm-hmm. on that thought? Because I mm-hmm. I know a, a lot of our listeners have struggled with various kinds of addiction, and many that have struggled with addictions that aren't illegal, which in some ways makes this so much harder. Um, mm-hmm. But you've just described how in prison, clearly you weren't at rock bottom because you're still figuring out uh, an alternate reality where you're still okay and not like those other guys. And then you come out and you have fantasies of, yeah, I can basically, I can still believe I can change this and turn it around. I'm just going to change my environment. I'm going to change these things. And I'm just thinking of so many conversations I've had where that that's a lethal combination. I believe I'm not like other people who are deep in the weeds and I'm just going to keep having fantasies of how this could be different at any minute. I could just change it. It'll be different. And that that fantasy keeps them in the darkness. Can you talk a little about those two things? The I felt different and I created these fantasies of an alternate world where everything's okay. Yeah. So the, the idea, I think the idea in my mind was, yeah, I could, so I could just leave and get out of this environment and start, uh, you know, going the right direction, you know, so to speak. Uh, but you're right. Wherever you go, there you are, right. There's no such thing as a geographical recovery. Right. And so, uh, I think that's absolutely right. Something needed to change deep within me, not my outer circumstances. And uh, but I actually didn't even I entertained that, but then just stayed and went full throttle um, into selling drugs. I dropped out of school and fighting charges. And so I went full uh, throttle the other direction, you know. But once again, I did believe that. Uh, I wasn't as bad as the other guys in jail that day or that the people that I sold drugs to. So I thought I was better than them. You know, they were junkies. I was, uh, you know, the drug dealer and, uh, I don't know. So how did you, how did you find your way to that point of, it might've been rock bottom. It might've been just where you saw what you needed to surrender in those thoughts how did you find your way to that moment? Right. So I lost um, 16 close friends. Um, wow. A few got shot and the rest were heroin overdoses. Mm. Um, and that was between uh, 92 um, and uh, 1998. Um, between that, between that time, I ended up turning into a hopeless, hopeless, hopeless junkie, Aaron. So I was worse than any of the people I ever sold drugs to my arms. Uh, I couldn't even find a vein. I'm not trying to, uh, be explicit, but I mean, I couldn't even, uh, shoot drugs. You know, I had to, my veins were all collapsed. I would break into commercial properties and steal a computer just to go sell it, to get a, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a bag of dope, a BB, you know, just to get well. So I was spending over $200 a day just to stay well on heroin. So not, uh, uh, I wasn't even getting high. I would just maintain because of the way the addiction progresses and the tolerance. Right. 
And uh, so it got it got real, real uh, bad. Did, and, did uh, you realize you were bad, or were you still believing oh, yeah. you were different? No. So oh, now no. you've you've admitted that you are now in the same prison in your mind and in your addiction and in your soul that those other guys were. Absolutely. And I thought there was no way out. So what happened was I gave up hope. I lost hope that I would ever change and thought I would die in prison like uh, my one of my uncles did or dry on the street like 16 other friends had at that point. Uh, so I had given up uh, all hope. And so that's a dangerous place to be without God, without hope. Um, so uh, dangerous for me and dangerous for others, right? Yeah. And uh, so what happened was... Um, I was in and out of jail, and uh, finally I I was on the run for a while and got picked up and had about 10 felony charges I was facing. And so I uh, got an attorney, and uh, they said, you know, well, I'm a drug addict. And that was no lie, right? I need help, not incarceration. So uh, they uh, we're going to send me up to uh, Denver, Colorado, to a place called Cinecor uh, at the time. Um, and so they let me out, and I was to go up there and uh, enroll in this year-long program in Denver, Colorado. Uh, so I uh, ended up, I was so strung out on uh, heroin that uh, my family actually dropped me off at a place called Denver Cares, a detox center. Um, they put me on medication. I was dehydrated, uh, almost died. And uh, so about a month later, you know, I was feeling pretty good at that detox center. And I was supposed to call um, Cinecor and get into the program. And uh, but I didn't. I ended up uh, calling a friend that brought up a bunch of drugs and we got high in uh, a hotel room and. Um, and uh, then I went back, ended up going back to uh, Albuquerque. Uh, and now I'm on the run uh, from the law because I didn't turn myself in. Right. So I'm mm -hmm. on the lam. Yep. And um, I, so a guy owed me money from before. And so I went into his house and uh, or sent someone, sent a girlfriend into his house and took some, uh, you know, different items that they had there. And we hawked them and bought drugs and i ended up seeing this guy at a 7-eleven um a day or two later right and uh he pulls around comes in and starts rushing me and uh so i had a knife and i told him stay back joe and uh he came at me and so i stabbed him twice and he fell to the ground um and uh we took off and um, he didn't die. He lived by the grace of God. And it wasn't my intention to kill him, but uh, he did not die. So that was uh, the grace of God because it, it came real close to his heart. Um, and then uh, I'm in another hotel room. And uh, so I decide uh, my dad tells me I need to go to a program and so I ended up going on the run and I, I just figured I need to get out of here and I'll go to Mexico and kind of beat these charges, uh, not beat them, but get away from, get out of the United States. I ended up going to Phoenix on the run and I was going to go to Mexico, uh, but had heard about uh, that recovery home 
you know, faith-based uh, one-year program by the name of Victory Outreach out of Los Angeles. And uh, so I went in there because I had heard that people had gotten off of heroin. I heard that people stayed out of prison um, at, through this program. So my intention, Aaron, was not to find Jesus. It was not to have a spiritual awakening. My intention was to go in there and get off the drugs so I could stay on the run and make it cross the border into Mexico. Um, and I went in there and uh, stayed. And for some reason, you know, stayed a month, stayed two months and ended up having a radical encounter with Jesus Christ. And um, so January of, of uh, 19 or no, December of 1998, we had a men's conference that uh, uh, we went to. I'd only been in a few months, but it was a men's conference in uh, Glorieta, New Mexico. So we came from Phoenix. There were about 500 guys from recovery homes and uh, at this uh, uh, chapel service right out at this retreat center. And I remember the um, the speaker uh, at the end of the message the first night said, I did an altar call for people who felt uh, called of, of God to ministry and uh, full, you know, vocational ministry. And so he wanted to pray for them. And so he uh, um, did the altar call. These, you know, everybody there went forward, it seemed like. And most of the guys of the 40 that were in the program I was in went down. And I'm thinking these, some of these guys aren't, uh, real, you know, these guys are still sneaking around smoking cigarettes, talking about girls. And I had a real encounter, you know, there I am, uh, uh, you know, been off drugs for just a few months and just barely met Jesus and already, uh, became a, a Pharisee, right? So nobody was as holy as me. Right. And, uh, but I wanted to be real, you know, Aaron. And so I said, God, I said, uh, I won't go, um, forward unless you speak to me. I'm not going up there because some uh, man, you know, uh, called me forward. And as soon as uh, the those uh, thoughts and words left my mind and heart, I, uh, I broke down and began to weep uncontrollably. I mean, like a little baby, a deep cry from uh, deep within my spirit, you know, just weeping. I don't, Aaron, I don't ever remember crying like that before in my life. Uh, I didn't, I wasn't a person that cried a lot, even as a kid. Um, my brother would cry a lot, you know, but I would push everything inside. Um, and so it came out sideways, right? I, I didn't deal with emotions and the right. trauma in my life. I just pushed it in. But um, so I, I was weeping and I said, okay, God, I get it. So I walked down and uh, uh, to that altar. And I believe that that's the day that I was called to ministry. Um, you know, 1998, wow. December of 1998. Uh, I got, we went back to the, the program. I graduated the year long program. I ended up helping run the program for a season and, uh, told my pastor, I spoke, I feel called to you know, maybe be a pastor one day. And he goes, well, you need to go to the school of ministry in downtown LA. And so I went to, uh, um, lived in downtown LA and uh, went to the School of uh, uh, Ministry for, for that organization. Um, and then uh, after I graduated, here's something that is 
uh, very uh, interesting. While I was in that school of ministry, uh, we would uh, go out evangelizing late at night, right? So this big mm-hmm. that ministry was like more of like a really like front lines, you know, street witnessing right. bullhorn. I'm, I'm assuming uh, you spent some time there in uh, in Skid Row around oh, those yeah. blocks. I, I, oh, yeah. I'm I'm familiar with those blocks. I had a pot of oh. spaghetti stolen from us at knife point from, from that area. So I'm with you. Oh, wow. I'm totally visualizing right. here. So, you know what? They had a huge house. Um, so there was probably um, 30 or 40 students, right? It was a huge old house, um, like a little compound, but it mm-hmm. was about three blocks away from the Staples Center. Okay. Yeah. And, so you, uh, you are downtown. Oh, yeah, downtown, yeah. And so we would go one night, you know, many nights, but this one night we went to sleep, and then they came and woke everybody up, and we hopped in the shuttle bus, and we uh, went evangelizing. So we went to Skid Row, right, and, you know, just blocks of people smoking crack on uh, cardboard boxes and yeah, uh, people dropping off drugs, you know, 24-7, you know. And uh, then we went to Santa Monica Pier, you know, and we were just, it was closed down, um, but uh, we were just kind of hanging out at the pier. And um, what's interesting is when I was, uh, when I was four years old, my parents were back in Southern California. Um, he, uh, you know, uh, came back from the mission field uh, for a retreat. And I remember uh, we went to Disneyland. And at Disneyland, there was a little, uh, um, it was like a shooting gallery where you shoot light out of the, out of the rifles, you knock over things in a saloon. Right. Right. Uh, If you know what I'm talking about, but yeah. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then, so right there, my, uh, uh, I was playing that game and loving it. I guess my parents said, we're going to Tom Sawyer Island and I didn't want to go. Right. And so I wanted to play the game. And, uh, so they might get in trouble for this nowadays, but what they did was they taught me a lesson. They left me there and they went to Tom Sawyer Island, right? <laughs> left me there. And I quickly found out that if I didn't have money to put in the machine, that no light came out of my rifle and it was not very much fun. So I stepped back uh, from the, I still remember this to this day, but I stepped back from the uh, shooting gallery with the rifles and stuff. And it was a little grassy area with the tree and uh, I felt uh, the presence of God, and I had seen people give their lives to Jesus. Of course, I grew up on the mission field, right, for my four little years, um, but I was there. I felt the presence of God, and, uh, and I asked Jesus to come into my heart like only a, a four-year-old can, right? Just yeah. very simple. Jesus, come into my heart, and uh, it, was a, it was a real encounter. and. Um, Parents got back. They went back to the apartment we were staying at that night. And I came in and I said, I told my parents, I said, uh, I asked Jesus into my heart today. And they just looked at me and kind of looked away and kept doing what they were doing. My dad said later, he said, I didn't, I honestly didn't know how God could meet such a rebellious little four-year-old <laughs> and uh, because I wouldn't leave, you know, I guess I was, you know, for, uh, but anyway, I said, uh, they said, they looked back over at me and I was crying and crying 
And I said, it's real, Dad. It's for real. And so they came over and prayed for me and sealed the deal, you know. And uh, so here we are. So, uh, you know, so that is many, many years later, um, uh, 24, you know, 25 years later, here I am at Santa Monica Pier evangelizing this one night. And I look over, I got separated from the group and I looked over and I saw a little, uh, it was like a miniature one. It was closed down because it was late, right? The, they had the, mm-hmm. uh, the whole pier was closed down, but you could still walk there. But it was a miniature shooting gallery. So it had the little rifles, the little saloon, right? And uh, I looked over at that and then um, I felt the Lord just in, in my spirit, just felt him say, do you remember when we first met? Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's so good. I broke into a million pieces right there and looked out at the ocean and just wept and wept because I forgot about God, but he never forgot about me. No. And came, you know, um, finished the school of ministry. Um, those were uh, wonderful days, you know. And uh, at the end of the school of ministry, they asked if I would go to Manila, the Philippines, and um, uh, be a, uh, uh, you know, with part of a missionary team uh, to plant churches and recovery homes in Manila. And I told the uh, told the leaders, I said, well, um, there's a possibility that I have an open account of attempted murder out of Albuquerque. Now, Aaron, in most ministries, that would be shocking, right? Well, you know, it's a it's a deal breaker for a lot of people. Yeah, sure. (laughs) So, you know what? You know what? The guy, the pastor told me, he goes, you know what? When I came to Jesus, I had a stack of charges you know, up to my head, but he goes, Jesus made them all disappear. <laughs> so I'm like, well, I guess I claim that for me, you know. But <laughs> so he was an optimistic fella. Optimist. And he had, done, <laughs> he had done lots of time in prison. So the leaders of that, of that ministry were all uh, um, ex-convicts, mm-hmm. ex-heroin addicts. So the founder of that ministry is, uh, my son was Pastor Sonny Argonzoni. I don't know if you're, you're not from the California area, right? Oh, I, I I am. I'm from San Luis Obispo my whole life, born and raised. Oh, in- well, you've probably heard of Victory Outreach. I have, absolutely. Yeah, so Sonny Argonzoni, he went through the Brooklyn Teen Challenge, right? And mm-hmm. uh, um, so I uh, went over there, and they separated from the Teen Challenge, and uh uh, because he was reaching a lot of Hispanics uh, right out of prison that were heroin addicts and moved them into his house, right? Him and his wife. Yeah. Probably not suggested way to do things, right? Nowadays, but Not suggested, uh, but it worked for him. It's good. It, it, it did work. I mean, you know, he had uh, several, uh, uh, five kids, you know, and uh, girls. But, I mean, yeah, it worked. And uh, so that's so that's the background of the ministry. So when I, you know, and here I am, I went through one of the recovery homes. So it wasn't a huge deal breaker as it would be for most, you know, but so they wanted me to con- go ahead. Uh, he wanted, this guy wanted me to continue to go. I said, well, let me pray about it. Right. Because I don't even know if I can hop on an airplane 
You know what I mean? What's my path for? Right? Or get arrested? So here's the thing, Aaron. In my mind, if I stay on the streets of LA, if I go to Manila, or if I go to prison, I'm going to serve Jesus. You know, just as hard wherever I'm at. You know, and so during that time, and I don't, I actually don't know um, what I don't know what your your faith tradition is. um, You know, and uh, I talked to. Uh, many people from different uh, faith backgrounds, and I am seminary educated. Um, but this this is just my. I'm just going to tell my story. You, you tell know? your story. So I went to um, uh, uh, Brownsville. I took a trip for a week and a half, and I drove out to Brownsville, uh, Florida, to see my uncle uh, with my dad, and uh, went out there, and uh, there was this uh, revival services. Uh, going on in Brownsville at the time. It was a guy by the name of Steve Hill, right? And so I went there, and I mean, people were running to the altar, giving their lives to Christ. And I saw that, and it just uh, melted my heart. You know, I don't think there's anything more beautiful than people giving their life mm-hmm. to Christ. And um, while I was there, uh, I'm there kind of praying, should I stay or should I go, right? Like an old Clash mm-hmm. song or something. Should right, I go? sure. That's, that's, that's what that song is about, too. People don't realize that. <laughs> right. <laughs> about the mission field. Right. <laughs> and so, uh, but, you know, I'm just, uh, uh, you know, kind of like laying it before the Lord, like, Lord, what do I do, you know? And, uh, um, and so a guy came up to me with a tape recorder. And he pulled out, uh, uh, you know, one of those old where it has the cassette tape mm-hmm. and uh, you press pray and record. So this guy presses record, comes up and tells me, God says, go, you're not out of place. You're in place. This guy began to say things in my life that uh, there's no way he would know. I'm not from Florida. He didn't know me. And uh, then he took the uh, tape out and gave it to me. I still have wow. the tape in my safe at the house. Oh my goodness. That's right. I'd never had anything like that happen to me, you know, up until that time and not really since anything quite like that. And so, but I went back to the uh, LA and I said, well, God says go. <laughs> Let's go to the Philippines. Let's go. You know, I didn't, I, I wasn't uh, trained enough in theology. Uh, or anything like that. I was just very simple, like, okay, this guy, you know, I'm praying and the guy came up and said, go, and here's the tape. Let's go. You know what I mean? Uh, so if someone asked me today what they should do uh, and they're wanted, I would tell them to go turn themselves in, right? And trust God yeah. with the outcome of turning yourself in. Right. But I was still a little rough, you know, and just kind of, uh, uh, and I believe it was the word of God. So there is precedent, I guess. Uh, Moses, <laughs> Uh, fled Egypt, right? And I was on the backside of the desert. But anyway, I'm I'm joking. But so yeah, no, uh, <laughs> I mean, you're, you're sort of joking. But I mean, you ask about my my theological box, and it's mostly my theological boxes. If you make a theological box for God, you're just going to miss out on something interesting, because the Bible's pretty much yeah, God's not going to do any of this. Uh, according to your plans, or with nearly as much consistency as you will write in a theological tome. So, absolutely, yeah. Sometimes he gives you cassette tapes. I don't yeah. know. I, right. Unexpected, unexpected. Right. But uh, 
Well, right. okay. So you're going to the Philippines and I'm watching our time and I want to get to your, your book and ministry, but I'm very curious what happens when you get to the Philippines. So, uh, first of all, it's a miracle that I flew out and they didn't stop me. Right. And yeah, sure. uh, went, went over there, was there for two and a half years, started, uh, churches and, uh, recovery homes. So what the, the main, uh, Recovery home had over a hundred people in it. Um, now, where were you? I was in Manila. So, so most most people don't realize. And I I had a wonderful Filipino roommate when I lived in Los Angeles, and uh, learned a lot. A lot of Filipino friends in the South Bay. Uh, mm-hmm. That is a rough area and ministry. The Phil. In what year was this? This would have been um, 2000. Yeah, 2000. Yeah, so the Mexican Viking in the Philippines is experiencing a, a whole different level of of some hard stuff. Oh, man, the pop. And so we were right in Metro Manila. So we were in the hood, right? And it was talk about poverty, right? Uh, yeah. We don't see anything like that um, in the United States. But the poverty, the addiction to Shabu which is basically speed um, and, you know, ho- uh, homeless children all over the place. And, um, but God moved in a powerful way. Um, two and a half years later, I, I came back to L.A. Um, and I had a plan for being uh, uh, an evangelist, you know, for uh, that organization that I was with and was kind of a rising star in that fellowship and denomination, um, came to L.A., and LAX, and uh, at the as I was uh, going through customs, I was arrested for a fugitive warrant out of Albuquerque, New Mexico. Mm. I was uh, taken to the Glass Towers, uh, LA County Jail. Um, was there for about six months. Uh, then I was extradited to Albuquerque, New Mexico, where I spent another year in jail. And I served Jesus that whole time. Uh, in jail, so, uh, I I gotta ask, and uh, you know, I'm already sorry, Nate. We're we're going over time, but I don't care, uh, because that was a huge, it had to be a huge test for your faith. You trusted God to take care of your stuff, and you went to the Philippines, and then you came back, and all of a sudden, you're back. Your reward for your service was to be put in prison. It was jail. Yeah, jail. Or jail, um, sorry. Yeah. I know <laughs> That's there's so that. good. That's so good. There's yes. a difference. You, I know to some people there's not, but. Uh, so. Yeah, I got it. <laughs> so anyways, you yes, you're in jail. Thank you yeah. for that. I accept the rebuke. No. Uh, <laughs> okay. It's good. Just but, trying to give you I a little mean, street, ca- street cred here. So. <laughs> it's, it's good. I know. I try to be hard and I fail every time. Uh <laughs> But I, I mean, seriously, here you've you've finally surrendered, and you you miraculously got to go do this ministry, and I'm I'm just picturing Paul in Damascus and Jerusalem, and then all of a sudden he ends up ten years making tents, and it's like, wait a minute, I thought we just had this whole experience for three years in the desert. I thought we were getting started here. And God's like, yeah, there's going to be a little cooling off period. And I can't imagine how that felt to you. Yeah, so it was very discouraging. You know what, Aaron, during that time, uh, my heart, I, 
in my heart, I was never like, God, this is your fault. Why did you do this to me? I knew it was my fault. I knew it was uh, consequences of, of uh, my life choices. So I never was like, God, why? You know, nothing like that. But I did get discouraged when I got released to fight the charges in Albuquerque. I'm facing 25 plus years in prison. They're wanting to get me on an attempted murder and absconding and a lot of stuff. And I got discouraged and uh, lamentably I did uh, relapse. And so I spent, um, I was on the run for about a year, year and a half and staying at cheap hotels in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I was back on drugs. And um, during that time, I had a lot of uh, demonic and drug induced um, stuff going on. I would have see little uh, demons running around me with voices of little children and shadow creatures um, leaving my body, just a lot of demonic stuff, actually, that many people on hardcore drugs, uh, you know, experience those delusions, which uh, I believe it was, I believe that demons are real, just like angels are real, and so is Jesus and and the devil. But Jesus is more powerful. But um, during that time, I got the, uh, um, uh, I became suicidal. So the 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 enemy of our soul was lying to me and saying, look at your life. It's a waste. You said you were a Christian, but you're a hypocrite. Um, you hurt everybody who loves you. You're a hopeless junkie. Why don't you blow your head off? So I had a 45 Ruger that I kept under the mattress there at that little hotel room that I was living in. And um, I would put that gun to my head and wanted to blow my head off. And by the grace of God, I didn't. I was picked up and sent to jail and um, got eight years in prison and totally backslidden. I got to prison and uh, the first year I was, I tried to go to church a few times and uh, it was like not reality, you know, so the Bible says sin separates us from God, you know, Mm -hmm. and uh, I was far from God. Um, and would try to read my Bible, would try, you know, and, uh, but it was just like not, uh, real. Um, I had memories of encounters with God and mission field and, you know, the tape and all this, but, uh, it was no longer real. And I thought those were delusions of a, uh, of a madman. Right. And so, mm-hmm. uh, I ended up in solitary confinement, the prison in Santa Fe, New Mexico for suspicion of bringing drugs into the facility. I uh, spent five uh, months in solitary by myself. And when I got to solitary, I um, I cried out to the Lord. I said, here I am. I'd lost everything again, Aaron. And mm-hmm. now I'm strung out in prison, in solitary confinement, uh, in prison, facing charges for bringing drugs into the facility, you know, potentially 10, 20 more years just for that if they got me for it. So I'm there and I just got down on my knees and cried out to God and um, uh, God came back. The Lord came into that little cell, even though I didn't see him with my natural eyes, I knew he was there. And, uh, Aaron, it was like waves of electric liquid love that flowed over me for five months. And my, my dungeon became a palace. My prison became a palace. My dungeon was filled with light. God restored the call that he had upon my life. Uh, I did nothing but read my Bible for five months and several more years that I was in there. I got out of solitary confinement and uh, was 
uh, voted in as the inmate pastor. I started doing undergraduate theological courses through a correspondence uh, university that's actually based here in Springfield, Missouri, Global University. And uh, God began to show up at the inmate church. And uh, so they thought it was a security threat. They thought it was a... um, like starting a new gang, because surely not everybody's going to church you know, for the call out for church. Uh, so they would move me to other facilities because they thought I was starting uh, inciting something. Um, by the time I got released from prison, the head warden, Anthony Romero, over the New Mexico uh, prison system came and walked me out. And he said, well, the, since you were in solitary confinement, uh, you know, your last, uh, the last time he goes, you've been a force for the good in the New Mexico prisons. And I want to thank you. And so he was <laughs> pretty amazing, right? He walked me out. He wasn't a believer. Uh, he knows that that's what I attributed it to, you know, the conversion, the change, but walked out and, uh, he shook my dad's hand, told my dad the same thing. Uh, I ended up going to, uh, um, uh, the community college in Santa Fe and was a GED tutor. And uh, uh, in 2011, I was accepted uh, to Central Bible College in Springfield, Missouri, and uh, came up here. Uh, so I've been here 10 years, but 10, 11 years, and met my wife who went through the Brooklyn Teen Challenge. She's uh, actually Filipino descent. She was born and raised in Flatbush, Brooklyn. Uh, I could I could tell. I saw the picture. I'm like, oh, your dad came from Mexico to meet himself a hippie, and you went to the Philippines only to find a Filipina lady. Yeah, <laughs> But so, not even from there, from Brooklyn. Go figure. She's, she's from Brooklyn. Her parents are from Cebu. Mm. Um, so she doesn't even speak, uh, Cebuano or Filipino or Tagalog. Tagalog yeah. She doesn't, yeah, she doesn't well, speak. Well, language. thank, thank goodness. Cause Tagalog is a hard language to learn for Americans. It really is. And they put the ending in the middle. It's weird, but conte lang Tagalog ako. That's better than I can do. Yeah. <laughs> That's all I know. That's all I got. How, how are you doing? And Jesus is Lord. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can only do Mabuhai. So there you Mabuhai, go. Mabuhai, yes. Uh, I, I want to I say two things, and then we're going to give people a way to, to hear even more of your story. But here's, here's the two things that I'm thinking. I asked you about rock bottom earlier on. And I know those of us that have walked through the darkness uh, resist rock bottom and long for it at the same time. And you went through so much that it felt like, okay, I'm finally set. And your story is extreme, but I think it's, it's very much what we all go through, which is we hit what we hope is rock bottom, but we're not quite there yet. We're not broken yet. Mm-hmm. And when you talk about being in, in solitary confinement, my, my first thought is of Jonah in the darkness of the fish. When he says, and I, I'm just, I'm going to do the whole thing because I think it matters. Cause here you are in, thinking that the delusion was the goodness of God. The goodness of the God that said, I met you at a shooting gallery across from Tom Sawyer's Island. Do you remember? I haven't left. I've been here always and met you again at the Santa Monica Pier. 
mm-hmm. and then finally the biggest surrender came when you were alone facing the consequences of your past and jonah said in my distress i called to the lord and he answered me mm-hmm. from the belly of sheol i called for help and you heard my voice mm-hmm. for you cast me into the deep into the heart of the seas and the current swirled about me all your breakers and waves swept over me at this i said i have been banished from your sight yet i will look once more toward your holy temple the waters engulfed me to take my life the watery depths closed around me the seaweed wrapped around my head the roots of the mountains to the roots of the mountains i descended the earth beneath me barred me in forever but you raised my life from the pit o oh lord my god as my life was fading away i remembered the lord my prayer went up to you to your holy temple those who cling to worthless idols forsake his loving devotion but i with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you i will fulfill what i have vowed salvation is from the lord yes i just love that he was with you through it all and even in those times of how in the world am i back to where i thought i started and he's saying oh you're not back where you started son this this is this is your palace and you and you wrote it down so Mm. other people can go on this journey with you my prison became a palace how's that for a transition come on i'm gonna i'm gonna comment (laughs) on it so that it's not even cool uh (laughs) you wrote this in a book so many details not discussed here uh are written in my prison became a palace how do people get a hold of you get a hold of your ministries find out more you've got your your re-entry homes yeah. The the ministries that you are doing at Freedom City Church and your book tell people how to learn more. Yeah, so uh you can go to freedomcitychurch.org uh, um or johnallerid.com. Uh you can get the ebook uh version uh of my prison became a palace for free or if you want a hard copy or it's a very evangelistic book so there's about thirty-five thousand copies distributed in the past uh, few years many in prisons um so uh last sunday i asked how many people had been incarcerated at our church and over half raised their hand um so at the springfield wow. uh, campus we'll have uh uh, you know, about 300 people on a Sunday morning. And uh, so, you know, way over 100 people had been uh, incarcerated. And so we do a lot of prison ministry. And, um, you know, one of the things that God spoke to me when I, I was on that solitary confinement prison cell was that he was raising up an army out of the prisons of the United States of America that uh, would preach the unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ. And When God spoke that to me, I didn't know if I was ever getting out of prison, Aaron, but he Mm -hmm. spoke a vision, showed me speaking in stadiums and churches and prisons. All those things have happened. Uh, A few years ago, spoke to Orlando Convention Center. 
um, you know, 20, 30,000 people present, hundreds of thousands watched online. And uh, he spoke a vision into my life that was uh, gave me hope. I had lost hope for so many years and, um, you know, and what seemed impossible, but I got out, finished, uh, came up here first, never been to Springfield, Missouri in my life, right? Came up here, met my wife, graduated with a bachelor's, master's, started my D-men. Now I'm uh, working on a second master's uh, at Drury University in nonprofit and civic leadership. And, uh, but God spoke to us about, uh, felt God leading us to start a church uh, in North Springfield, uh, devastated with addiction, incarceration, highest childhood hunger uh, in the state. And uh, so now we have the uh, reentry homes, Hope Homes is the Springfield Adult and Teen Challenge. I'm the CEO and president. We also have uh, Straight Street Sober Living Homes. Um, and then we have Freedom City Church with a campus here in Springfield, Branson, about 45 minutes south. Uh, then also at the local prison uh, in Fordland. Um, I'm on committees with the city and uh, with the mayor's task force on equity and, uh, you know, speaking for uh, people that are getting out of prison, returning citizens and what we can do to stop the recidivism uh, rate, you know, and see people live successfully. So uh, but it all goes back to, uh, you know, uh, the Lord who met me. Uh, I had given up. I had resigned myself to the pit and the prison of my own making, but God rescued me. Uh, he raises the beggar from the dunghill and causes him to sit with the princes of his people. When I graduated with the master's from the seminary here at Evangel University, uh, the seminary president asked me to wear an orange prison jumpsuit. I was the commencement oh, speaker. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Wow. Right. I mean, there we, we had K-Love was there, the local news, prison fellowship. I mean, there was all kinds of news media there right, to watch this guy in the orange prison jumpsuit. So I shared the commencement speech and then the president of the university put the black robe uh, over me. And uh, um, pretty amazing. After that, Aaron, I got calls from all over asking if I would come and speak in an orange prison jumpsuit. And I said that was uh, that was a one time deal. We're not doing that again. Thank goodness. Uh, so yeah. you don't have to be Matthew the tax collector for your entire life, or Simon the leper. You That's just exactly get to be John right. Allered. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, folks, check him out, John. Thank you so much for your time and this beautiful story of God's pursuit and being gracious yeah. enough to take you on the long journey. Yeah. Well, All right. It's great to be here with you guys. Well, we will be right back here on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Well, I, uh, I hope that you found that conversation as stirring and inspiring and challenging as I did. You know, I'm grateful, so grateful for that conversation, especially since it reminded me of the centrality of a prison ministry to authentic Christian living. Uh, you know, it's instructive to me that, you know, more than half of the New Testament was written from prison, 
And Jesus certainly, you know, highlighted the fact that the father is concerned for the prisoner. He said he came to set the prisoner free. Uh, I'm haunted at times by this story that Jesus told in Matthew 25. It's probably familiar to you, but I'm going to go ahead and read it. It starts from uh, verse 31 of Matthew 25. Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right, the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When didn't we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothes you, clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly, I tell you, whenever you did it for one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. And then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison? It did not help you. And he will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of things, you did not do for me. And then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Man. What a sobering story. I don't know uh, what you and your brothers, whether in the Samson Society or in the wider Christian community are doing these days to minister to those who are in need, whether you have registering on your radar or concern for those in prison. If you're in the U.S., I hope you're well aware that we have the highest incarceration rate in the West. We've got... Uh, uh, 2.3 million people incarcerated in the United States. We've got an incarceration rate of 698 people per 100,000. And by the way, the racial and ethnic breakdown is hardly representative of the general population. Those, uh, you know, minorities disproportionately represented within the prison population. And there is a place for those of us who profess a faith in Jesus Christ and trust him um, to minister to him as we minister to them. 
Uh, grateful that Samson has been finding its way into prisons here and there. Uh, and I hope in the future that uh, we will become more active in helping those who are making transition from jail life or prison life, from incarceration into uh, the wider population. And I'm hopeful that uh, we'll be able to work with John and those like John uh, who have been called, responding to the call to minister there. All right. Well, we're coming to the close of this episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. A reminder, we do have that big fall retreat. Soon there will be a registration page coming up. I can't announce that none other than uh, Jim Cress, uh, the terrific uh, CSAT counselor experienced uh, and a fellow recovering addict is going to be our main speaker. Uh, we have a, a musical guest on the hook that I'm not able to announce yet, but I think you're going to you're going to love that news when it comes along. And as soon as that's settled, we also have uh, some great suggestions coming in for workshops. I'll tell you what: if you have an idea for a workshop that would be helpful during the fall retreat, uh, and by the way, once again, like last year, uh, you'll be able to sign up for the retreat in person. Uh, it'll fill up quickly because we, because we have a, a, a limited capacity there in Eva, Tennessee at the Lakeshore Conference Center. Uh, but we also will record all the sessions. And if you can't get there yourself, uh, a week or so later, you'll be able to participate in the retreat online. We'll run a virtual retreat. If you have an idea, a thought, a desire, a suggestion for for a helpful workshop that we might be able to uh, present during the retreat, whether you have a presenter in mind or whether you just have a topic in mind, please shoot us an email here at the podcast and, and let us know. You can reach us at piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. And by the way, you can also get me at nate at samsonhouse.org or uh, Dr. Tom Mocha, the president of Samson House, his address is tom at samsonhouse.org. All right. Well, hopefully by next time, Aaron will be along. If not, we'll find another way to get the brotherhood cooking here uh, <laughs> in cyberspace. So glad you were able to join us this week. Until next time, I'm your friend, Nate Martin, on the Pirate Monk. The Pirate Monk Podcast is produced by members of the Samson Society. Send your feedback or questions to piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. Please give us a five-star review on iTunes and share the podcast with a friend. For more information, please visit samsonsociety.com.